ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Hello and welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and this is our final episode of the best of Lime Ninja Radio. This week we're bringing you from the archives a wonderful interview with Dr. Adam Nally. He uses the ketogenic diet in his practice all the time, and it's so awesome to run across physicians who get it, quote unquote, and that they're not just throwing pills at you. I love this interview. It's a great walk around the ketogenic diet and ketosis and the health benefits of that. I'm sure you'll enjoy it and look forward to speaking with you all next week. We'll be back live and I'll be ready, recharged, and recovered from my vacation. Talk to you all soon. I'm very excited to talk to you. <laughs> I, re I really, truly am. I've, I've been listening to Jimmy since back in the, the day. Oh, wow. Um, I was actually one. I think I was guest number 30 even on his show way back when he was hungry for guests. That's awesome. Um, and then, you know, kind of drift in away, in and out, right? Uh -huh. and, and he's kind of come back with the keto, and I'm very interested in that and listened to the whole South African thing. And then I found your podcast with him and just devoured them you know, <laughs> riding around on the tractor one, one weekend. And uh, just great stuff. Oh, that's great. That's, well, that's good to hear. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. Now, and let me just set up a little bit here. The, the Lyme, there's some stars in the Lyme community, including uh, Dave Asprey and Tim Ferriss, who both had Lyme disease, and they both used a version of ketogenic to heal. However, you don't hear a whole lot about ketogenic diets in the, the Lyme community. Really? And, Right. So I'm trying to track down people who've done it and interview one. And I, so far, I haven't been, haven't been successful. At the, <laughs> at the same time, it makes so much sense. Oh, it makes absolute sense. Oh, it's, it's like that. It's one of the missing links. I have, I have a, one of my patients is a, a pediatric surgeon and he had to retire and go on disability because he, he either had a Lyme flare or was reinfected. Um, and I kind of broke the news. He said, I really would like you to do a ketogenic diet. He's, he rolled his eyes. And he said, you know, certain a subset of his patients were all on pediatric uh, uh, ketogenic diets. He said, look, I'm, I'm interested in you eating real food, not, you know, shakes or anything, but, but take it under consideration. And uh, we'll, we'll see if I can get him to, to come around. Because essentially at this point, he's been on IV antibiotics. And the stuff's either hidden right now or all killed off. And his his symptoms are all mitochondrial. It's energy stuff. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, so I'm going to talk. I also you mentioned you do a lot with MTHFR. Oh, a ton of it. yeah. I, I about sixty percent of the people in my office are deficient. Wow. So it, it, it's huge. I, I um, my practice is probably fifty five percent uh, elderly or over fifty five. I should say um, not all elderly, but I have a large um, retired population in the Sun City area out here uh, in Arizona. The, the Del Webb Sun City communities are a big draw for the snowbirds that travel back and forth between uh, the Midwest and, and here. Where I live in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got a, quite a few go to New York and yeah. Michigan and, and that whole region. They, they travel back and forth every year. Um, and so I, I – and, so, and I have a and about uh, – at least 85% of the people who walk through my door are pre-diabetic or diabetic. So – um, and then of those pre-diabetic or diabetic patients, at least 65% of them are, are, have some degree of MTHFR deficiency. And, uh, and, and the neuropathy usually arises with that and, other, and the, de the depression and anxiety and all those things that are secondary to that arise. So it's pretty, pretty prominent. Um, and uh, so I, I do a lot of treating it with it. And in fact, I designed uh, my multivitamin that I designed, I specifically designed with the um, – methylated folic acid in it so that it would treat that problem. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, it's such a no brainer at this point. I don't understand why more vitamin companies haven't just done that d default. Oh, I, I don't either. It's, yeah, you'd, you'd think that I, would, I, you would think that it would be over on the, over the counter in a, you know, a, 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 a um, pharmaceutical grade at some degree because people make a fortune if they could do it, but it's uh, interesting that, uh, they don't. So, 
let, let's just keep on going because I think this is great. Will you describe, so the MTHFR is a methylation defect. What is methylation? Because most people think of methylation and they kind of just bring it down to detoxification and liver function. But it's a bigger problem than that, isn't it? Well, it, it's a genetic issue. And so, you know, depending on your genetics, what we're seeing is a degree of, um, a degree of, of difficulty based on the way your genetics and the mitochondria work in how that methyl ion is attached to folic acid. If, if, if your folic acid is not um, methylated, you cannot absorb B6 and B12. Well, if you have B6 and B12 deficiency, you're going to see a whole slew of things from neuropathy, uh, numbness and tingling in the legs and the feet, uh, to uh, anemia and um, uh, various forms of uh, irritable bowel, celiac, and things of that nature. So you're going to see uh, um, you know, uh, a, um, what they call pernicious anemia, things of that nature, a whole, whole slew of those issues. And then an inability to use some of the other components of the Krebs cycle because you're not functioning correctly that way. So it, it, if you can't get you know, it's, it's, it's like having a folic acid deficiency. Uh, you get all the symptoms of folic acid deficiency when you're actually, your folic acid levels in the blood are normal. But the problem is that folic acid has to get into the cell, be methylated, actually have a methyl ion attached to it, which can then activate the B6 and B12 receptors and allow the B6 and B12 to be used through that Krebs cycle in the cell individually. So you can mega load with B6, B12, and folic acid, and all your levels will be fine on your blood tests, but you will literally not get any benefit from, from it because you're, you, you can't use it. It's like, it's like you know, putting gasoline in a diesel engine. It doesn't work. So you, you've got you've to fix that. Um, so the big challenge is um, identifying, are you one of those people that doesn't methylate it? And, and the genetic testing we have now, um, get, at least the one the test that I use, um, allows us to determine a degree of, of, uh, of methylation. I have some people that just don't do it at all, and I have some that are poor methylators, and I have some that are mildly deficient. And so you may see varying degrees of how well your body actually can use that folic acid and so there's varying degrees of how the disease will show up and you know and and where the body uh shunts that b6 and b12 and is able to use it so it's fairly broad spectrum and um i am convinced that it plays a huge role in in the depression and anxiety that we're seeing in our community um i i think it, it it is the main factor with diabetic polyneuropathy uh at least 60 percent of people as soon as i get them on a methylated folic acid, they actually have a resolution of their neuropathy sixty uh, percent of the time. So it's it's pretty it's pretty profound to see that um, uh, happen. That's that's amazing. One, so I'm an acupuncturist, and from time to time I get people with some form of neuropathy, uh, and it's theoretically acupuncture is supposed to be great with that. And I have had the worst success. I've been a failure at this, so I've started turning people away. But now. It makes sense if they don't have the the vitamins to be able to to turn that around. I can needle them till the cows come home, and I'm not going to fix that. Well, and I, you know, when I first came out of school, you know, for the first really, I, you know, we, we I really didn't I, we didn't have this test available to do the genetics uh, until about two years ago. Is I didn't have it in my office. It may have been around longer, and I, I was unaware of it. But about two years ago, I was identi- I they they brought it in and said, "Hey, look at this testing." And I went, "What?" Um, and uh, so so I started reading on it. And went. Because huh. I had a huge number of patients that had B12 deficiencies that just didn't respond unless right. I you know, gave them IV B12. And then even then they only felt good for a, a week or two after the shot. And I was like, something's wrong here. I don't get this. So I, uh, I, I had one patient that I said, well, let's test this. And so I, she, she did the test and she was a very poor metabolizer of, of, of the folic acid. Um, and I gave her the, the methylated folate and she went, whoa, I feel fantastic. And her, her depression got better. And when I checked her B12 the next month, she didn't need the shot. Her B12 levels were great. And I went, what? This is weird. So um, she actually was able to retain the B12 in her system and, and, you know, and didn't need the, the, the uh, injections that we were seeing where, where she was dropping. Now, how she dumps the B12 with that, I don't know the mechanism behind that. But in her case, that was the case. So I went, hmm. And I would send tons of people to the neurologist that had neuropathy that were uh, what I noticed was that about five years prior to the onset of diabetes, I'd see people with this polyneuropathy that would show up that had no reason, and the neurologist would, would do nerve conduction testing, which is very painful on them, yeah, yeah. and they would come back and go, and the neurologist would say, well, you have this cryptogenic neuropathy that's you know, there, so he, he needs B12, and so, so we'd start giving him B12 shots, and it never worked, uh, never, I, I think maybe once in 
15 years if I ever had just plain old B12 shots help somebody with the neuropathy. But that was the treatment that was being recommended by the neurologist when we identified it. And then about five years later, these patients all became type 2 diabetics. Uh, I went, whoa, wait a second, this is weird. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in, in I'd seen that, I thought, okay, let's check these guys. So I started just, you know, when patients could afford it or their insurance would cover it, we would do this genetic screening and see if they had the deficiency. And lo and behold, about 60% of the people that come through my door have it. Um, and so we just started. We started treating them, and uh, just a simple change in their folic acid intake in their vitamin solves the problem. And I went, "Whoa, this is really fascinating." And then I was seeing people go, "Well, doc, I'm, I'm feeling better, and I don't really need my you know, antidepressant as much." Uh, and uh, I had a couple of patients that I've, I've just treated them with that first, and their depression has improved. Um, it doesn't always solve it, but it, it improves. And, and so, you know, those are some big factors. I have a lady, I know a couple of ladies that have been anemic. Um, you know, and we've given them B12 and it kind of helps, but they don't quite get there. And as soon as we fix the folic acid, all of a sudden their anemia bounces back to normal. And I went, okay, this is really interesting. I never would have suspected this. Um, but that, that genetic component is, is a huge, uh, factor, uh, in that, uh, in, in their treatment. So, um, and, and it occurs in varying degrees. It really does. I've seen some very severe ones and I've seen some very mild ones and all, all the ones in between. And so, it plays a huge role in metabolism, and I, and I think it, has, it plays a huge role in metabolism in regards to recovery uh, because I'm seeing it uh, associated with uh, you know, patients who have thyroid illness and patients who have other uh, you know, disease where, where their ability to recuperate is, is delayed because of uh, this deficiency that, that arises. I have a question about the folic acid versus folate or you know, from greens or from a other supplement. Does the folic acid bind to receptor sites and block folate being able to get there? Is that not really a problem? It's not a problem. Okay. As far as I know, it's not a problem. I'd have to look back at the, the uh, biochemistry on that, but it, as far as I recall, it is not. Um, uh, it, folate and folic acid really are, are, are synonymous terms uh, in regards to how you're naming it with the nomenclature. Um, it's, it's really when it's, it's really in the, methylate, in the methylation inside the cell that really becomes the issue. And how it's converted over. Yeah. And I would have to, I'd have to pull the biochemistry back out. I, don't, I haven't looked at it in a while. I heard that somewhere, and I just was, thought I might be able to confirm that with you or not. So, sorry, you know, sorry to there, put you on the spot. No, 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 no. no. Well, there's, and I've been told, and I haven't really delved into it deeply, that you know, from leafy greens there is a small amount of the methylated folic acid that is present. Um, but it's very small and minuscule in the leafy greens. So, you know, if you're doing lots of greens, you may actually feel a little better. And that may be why, um, I suspect, uh, that's why I have some patients that tell me they feel better generally when they went to a vegetarian diet or juicing, um, right? Yeah. Or they're juicing, but you know, but in, in, uh, but I actually find people who are insulin resistant get worse with juicing yeah. because it actually activates the carbohydrate. Uh, when you break those bonds, uh, in the fiber, although you are, uh, of it, making available some of that folic acid. And I, like I said, that, that there's, I, I, I've been told, I, like I said, I haven't looked it up yet, but there is a little bit of the, the methylated form available in the natural folic acid uh, that comes through the greens. Uh, so you, th- those people may find some benefit um, in, in, that, in that higher intake of the greens, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I have not seen any data on it. So really, supplement, if you're a poor methylator, you really need to supplement. As far as I have been able to identify, yes. Um, and, and if you're following a ketogenic diet, my suggestion is make sure you're getting at least a, a one or two leafy green salads a day uh, on top of that because that, that also provides that as well. So uh, another, another way to, to ensure that that's okay. Yeah, so let's skip on over to a ketogenic diet. And I mean, one of the, there's some knocks out there on this type of diet because the brain needs carbohydrates to function and you're not getting enough vitamins. You're not getting your vitamin C. You're not getting all these great uh, bioflavonoids that are coming with all these beautiful colored fruits and vegetables. So what, why is that wrong? (laughs) We just tee it up that that way. Just tee it right up. Here we go. All right. Um, (laughs) Well, it's wrong because I was told that in medical school. Um, That's that's literally what I was told in school was, you know, Oh, it's bad. You can't do that. You know, your brain's going to die. Um, you know, so but if you actually sit down but and go, okay. wait, let, and stop here for a second because I've been listening to your podcast. You treat thousands of people and recommend low carb or ketogenic diet, and they're not dying on you. No, they're actually getting better. They're they're getting dramatically better. Um, in fact, I get at least two hugs a day from people coming in going, "Oh my gosh, I feel better!" And so it's a uh, it's it's fantastic to see. It, it, actually, the practice of medicine is fun again. 
um, you know, for the first five to six years of my practice, um, I was miserable because people were, I had one lady, sweet, sweetest lady, she followed me through residency, which is a three-year residency, and, and then she came out to my practice, and she had been with me about five years in private practice, so I'd been seeing her about eight years in total, and she came in and saw her, I saw her, and her cholesterol was up again, and her blood sugar was up again, and so I, I gave her another pill, and she said, Dr. Neal, I've been seeing you eight years, and for every year I've seen you, you give me a new pill. This is pill number eight, and that, that really bothered me. Yeah. Um, you know, my my father was he weighed almost four hundred pounds. He was a type two diabetic that progressed to to uh, um, insulin dependence. Uh, he went into renal failure, had a quintuple uh, heart attack. Oh, that's five vessels, and then three of those had to get stented later. And he ended up dying at fifty eight. Um, and he was on thirty two pills and and one hundred fifty units of insulin, and and just and, and he was following the low fat program and trying to exercise, but he couldn't. He ended up you know he ended up being in a wheelchair because he had charcoal joints to the legs and just a whole slew of things and. His genetics and my genetics looked identical. And what kept me awake at night really was the fact that I'm, I'm doing what we're told to do. I'm doing what I was trained to do in medical school, and it's not working. Right. Um, you know, it's, I, I felt like you know, I'm giving these people pills, and it's, it's like you know, we're, we're back leeching people again you know, in, the, in the early 1800s. So it's just not doing the job. And uh, so, uh, that, that's, so I started – but I saw these patterns, like the, the pattern with people who were having neuropathy, and then five years later they're diabetic. And I went, huh. That's weird. Um, and you know, when I was in residency, within the first three years of residency, I, I noticed that triglycerides were always elevated before the person became a type 2 diabetic. And I went, okay, well, that's weird too. Um, and, and so I, you start seeing these patterns. And you know, I, when I, one of the, I think the greatest um, statement ever given to me in medical school was, a, was an old uh, retiring general surgeon, really, really wise guy. He was like 6'5 and had this real deep voice and commanded an audience. And he was like the second speaker in school, and he ended up saying to the cl- class, you know, because I, I can give you a bunch of stuff, and I can talk to you for hours. He said, but there's really only one thing you need to know. 50% of what we're going to teach you here is wrong. We just don't know which 50% that is. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and, and so in seeing these patterns, I, you know, that, that thought's in the back of my mind, well, are we doing something wrong? Uh, and the challenge is having the courage to, get, to buck the system and say, okay, let's, let's go a different direction and see what happens. So I actually started looking for... You know, some causes of weight issues and, and why, this, what, this, why this pattern of diabetes was occurring. And in doing so, ended up finding some training for be, uh, obesity and uh, through an obesity society, which is now called the American um, the Obesity Medical Association. And they had a, a, a fellowship program and a, a board certification that was available. Um, and uh, so I said, I'll, I'll take it because I could use it. So we, we literally went back through over a 500-hour course and, and read all of the um, – nutrition information from 1850 essentially through oh, today no kidding and, and uh it, it was awesome and yeah. and so you know, we read this and, and i went wait a second we've known that sugar makes you fat and sugar raises your cholesterol since the early 1940s but we've ignored it and we put a stamp of approval on fat being bad in 1970 and all of a sudden now we're all sick and, and ill and i went this is weird so at that moment in time, and then hearing some, some evidence from some of those that had been doing low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets and those, those that had actually been trained by Dr. Adkins, like Eric Westman and, and uh, some of those guys, um, pretty profound effect they were seeing in their practices. And I went, okay, I've tried everything else. I've tried veganism, vegetarianism. I've tried the, you know, the, the, the zone diet. I've tried all these things. I, I've, I've literally tried every diet, and it's not worked for me. It's not worked for my patients. The last thing is this crazy eat, eat a lot of fat diet, you know. And uh, at the time, it was high protein, we thought it was. So right. I told my yeah. wife, I said, honey, if I don't do something, she says, you're going to kill yourself. And I said, well, if I don't do something, uh, you know, you and I are going to be shopping for a casket at age 57. So she said, okay. So for six months, I ate a pound of bacon and three eggs cooked in butter every morning for breakfast and <laughs> looked as, for, as much fat as I possibly could, and I lost 60 pounds. And my cholesterol normalized, and I felt better than I'd felt in years. Yeah. And, and I went, okay. I got to understand this. And so that's, that's where I really realized that, um, you know, as a bariatrician or somebody who specializes in weight, um, it, you know, cal- calorie means absolutely nothing because I was eating 5,000 calories a day when I was doing that and I lost weight. And so that's, so I started looking at this saying, this is, we're missing something. And what we realize is when you look at it from a different perspective, we, we gain or lose weight. We make or, or don't make cholesterol. We I- increase or decrease inflammation because of hormone signals. And, you know, Hippocrates had it right. 
2,000 years ago when he said, let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. Because our food, whether we recognize it or not, it has a hormone signal that's usually more powerful than most of the drugs I prescribe. And that's really the driving factor. So when we recognize that and then we recognize what hormone signal that food stimulates, uh, we can solve most of the diseases of civilization, I'm convinced. Um, and so that's, that's, where I, that's where I've started you know, jumping on my bad wagon. And, and so I said 10 years ago, okay, I'm going to do this. And I, I kind of slid into it myself and then said, okay, well, if, we're, if this works for me, I'm, you know, those patients that are crazy enough to follow me, let's, let, you know, let's try it. So I started trying it. And I started out very mild carb restriction and then got tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where I'm now you know, very much an advocate of very tight carbohydrate restriction with high fat. Uh, and as we've learned more about fat and, and how to decrease protein, we find that um, our ability to, to modulate um, inflammation and, and blood pressure and, and cholesterol and heart disease and uric acid and, and all these factors is really heavily related to our diet. Uh, that's a long-winded answer to what you, what you asked. But. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it's all good stuff. Now, one of the things... If we can talk about two issues here, one is ketogenic diet and your immune system, right? And how it supports that. And I know people are using a ketogenic diet with cancer and yes. you can't find a whole lot about it on, in terms of infection. But I just wonder if you had anecdotal stories about people's health kind of writing itself and not getting be susceptible to flus and so forth and so on. That's the other thing. And then the other is you must have people in your practice who come in and are feeling pretty bad. I mean, some people with Lyme disease are really, they're bedridden. And yeah. they just feel terrible. So to switch over a diet, I mean, you go through that transition phase and you know, is it, are there hints or the ways to do it or do you just kind of have to suck it up and suffer through, you know, the headaches or whatever's going to come through or the low energy, you know, they're already feeling, you know, like fibromyalgia patients or chronic fatigue patients just exhausted anyway. Is there any way to, to do that? So infections first and then is there any way to ease through the misery of, of getting your metabolism to flip from burning carbs to burning fat? Well, you know, I, I have some patients that do it slow and I have patients that do it fast. And, and to, you know, to give a definition to, to what I do, um, I, I usually put people on a very low carbohydrate diet to start. So I cut their carbs down to 20 grams a day or less. Um, and that's all carbs. That's not net or, or total. That's, that's, to, that's total carbs. That includes fiber um, then. That includes, well, fiber is kind of the free. So if it's leafy and it's green, there's no limit to it. Okay. But if it's not a leafy green, then it's considered a carbohydrate and, and there is, a, a, there is some, some, carbohydrate that's derived from that. So you will get some from your non-leafy green vegetables uh, and your fruits specifically too. Um, so I give patients a table and I, I wrote up a diet and said, okay, here it is. This is what I want you to follow. Um, we know that, that protein also has a similar effect. You know, your body uses protein for building blocks. Um, and if you overshoot your ideal body weight uh, and the need for protein based on your, your ideal body weight and your you know, physical activity level, then, then some of that protein is actually converted into a, a, sugar, a form of sugar and does spike insulin. The, the underlying issue here is that it's the, the driver for inflammation, um, and there are a number of them, but the most powerful driver for inflammation that we're seeing in the literature, at least that I see in the literature, hormonally is insulin. And um, what I see over and over and over again in my practice is that insulin drives that inflammation significantly in regards to um, in inflammation, infection, um, amplifying all those kind of things. And, and it, it has a huge uh, uh, um, influence and for, for, for longer than you know, 12 to 24 hours in some cases, depending on your genetics. Uh, that's one of the big challenges that arises with a lot of people. So uh, I cut their carbs down. We increase their fat. We moderate out their protein. Uh, and then what I what we end up seeing is when they shift into ketones being their primary fuel, we now have a secondary fuel source. Um, and to answer the question about the brain, you know your your brain needs a hundred grams of carbohydrate per day, um, but your liver makes two hundred and forty no matter what you do. And so you don't have to have carbohydrate for your brain to function because your liver does the job. Now, if you're absent of liver, that's a different story, but um, if you're absent in the liver, you also have some major problems too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, if, if, you, if you understand that um, you don't need to eat carbohydrate because your liver makes it for you, uh, that solves the, the concern that most um, nutritionists have about, you know, oh, my word, you're going to die if you don't have carbs. Right. Um, you but if you actually, think and right, yeah. Yeah. 
if you look in the textbooks, there are no diseases that relate to carbohydrate deficiency. You hunt through them, they just don't exist. There are, there are if you have a protein deficiency and there are if you have a, a fat deficiency, but there are none for carbohydrate deficiency So if you, in regards to intake. Um, now, if you don't eat carbs, then your body was designed to use fat as its primary fuel, and it converts the fat. And, and the amazing thing about fat is fat comes in the form of uh, free fatty acid or triglyceride. And when that's burned, <clears throat> you actually get energy from it the first time. And then when it's burned the second time, it, it, turn, it turns into a ketone first. Then the ketone actually is, is, can be burned a second time and produce fuel from, uh, energy from that too. The ketone, when it's burned, the, uh, when it's available, actually passes right through the blood-brain barrier, doesn't need insulin, and actually uh, allows the brain to function. And, and the brain, interestingly enough, functions better on ketones. People feel more clear-headed on ketones than they do on glucose. And the reason is that um, there's a couple pathways uh, and brain hormones that we now know of from a study that actually was published this year. Um, it's called BDNF is produced, and, and that BDNF actually allows the brain to use ketones even more effectively. And so people feel more clear-headed on ketones. They lose the brain fog. They lose that cloudiness that occurs, and they feel great. Now, the other amazing thing about ketones is that ketones act as neural signalers as well. So ketones, we're finding, actually turn on genetic signaling. So they actually change your genetics. Uh, and ketones um, turn down inflammation. Now, inflammation uh, is the driving factor with your immune system that works both on arthritis and also on infections. So, so we're basically uh, at the, ner- at the neuro- nerve and at the um, uh, uh, immunity level turning on and off genetics with a fuel source, which is the coolest thing there is. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, actually, it is pretty you're, cool. you're actually morphing your cells based on a fuel source. And, and uh, so it, it, it's really quite profound to see what's happening. So we're starting to see improvement in inflammation and cancer and, and you know, some, some people's responses to infection. Um, and, and so it's, it's really impressive. That's, again, another long-winded answer to your, to your question. But that's what uh, you know, a ketogenic diet is shifting to ketones. And then those ketones both act as a fuel and as a neural signal, not only uh, endocrine-wise, but also what's called paraendocrine, meaning cell-to-cell. So you now have a, a fuel that acts to signal the whole body and also acts to signal cell to cell, which is way cool. So I'm going to tee you up with another question here, and that is, is it enough just to cut your carbs and eat a little bit more fat? I mean, to, to get into ketosis, to be in a ketogenic state, or are people individual, and is there some other way that you absolutely know you're in ketosis? Well, we are individuals. That's, that's the one amazing thing about it. And no, no two people are alike. And that's why the practice of medicine is still a practice. It's not perfected yet um, <laughs> because everybody's a little different. And, um, and your genetics are a little different. And, and, and unfortunately, in our country, um, and, and what, what I see statistically in my office is that 85% of the people that walk through my door um, have some degree of insulin resistance. And so what that means is when they're exposed to sugars or starches or carbohydrate, um, they produce varying levels of insulin. Now, what I, what I, the common example I use is if you were to eat a piece of bread, you should produce a slice worth of insulin uh, to absorb the sugars in that bread. Insulin is the key that opens the door in the cell, lets the, fuel get into be, it lets the sugar get into be used as fuel. The challenge is that um, if you give that same slice of bread to me, who's highly insulin resistant, I produce 10 times the insulin in response to that. And so I get 10 times the effect of that high insulin load being present. And if insulin, we know that insulin is the driver in suppressing testosterone. It's the driver in, in increasing inflammation. It's the driver that increases cholesterol. It's the driver that pushes heart disease to form and uh, increases uric acid. So if I'm producing 10 times the insulin, I'm going to get 10 times that response. And that will last for up to 12 hours. So as individuals, you may produce a normal insulin response or you may produce an excessive insulin response up to you know, 10 times the normal value. And so based on that, um, you, may, um, you, may, you may see things respond um, to varying degrees of difference. So you, know, you may have one person that can restrict their carbs mildly and actually do really, really well. And then you may have others that are highly insulin resistant like I am. And unless you really tighten down those carbs, you won't see the effect of, of shifting into ketose as, ketones or ketosis as your fuel. The other component is that if you do not increase the fat enough, your body's forced to use the protein. If we cut out the carbs, but we don't eat enough fat, which is what often happens to a lot of people who are fat phobic or afraid of the fat going to kill them. 
they eat too much protein, and, and then that protein halts their ability to get into ketosis, and it, and it doesn't really give them the benefit that they want. Now, when I first started doing this, um, just the shift away from sugar in general gave me some significant feeling of, of, of improvement and a significant amount of weight loss. Um, but to truly maintain that over time because of my genetics, I've had to realize that I've got to really tighten that down. You know, if I walk by a bakery, I gain weight, and that's the problem. <laughs> And some of us are that way. Now, yeah. you know, some, some people are not, and they can cut the carbs down to 40 grams a meal and, and actually feel fabulous and be in ketosis. So it, it, it's very variable, and the only way to know is to test, uh, unfortunately. And so how do you test? Well, you can use uh, a blood test, your finger stick, like a blood sugar. You, you, you check your ketones. Uh, the problem is that the monitors to do that are expensive. Uh, the monitors are cheap, I should say, but the test strips are expensive. So you can urine test. That's good for about two months disappears as your body begins to use the key more efficiently it holds on them. Um, there's a blood test, which is just and there's a breath test. The challenge of the breath test is it gives you a color a number. Um, if you're really wanting to find how far into ketone, how bad was this food, how did it affect me? Um, the blood test is really right now the only truly um, effective measure to look at it. Like, well, you know you're there, the, the breath test is fantastic, works really well. Um, let me tell you a, a little story i i went listening to your podcast and 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 jimmy uh knew i needed to cut back on the carbs and really decided okay we're gonna go ketogenic now and finally got my I'm insulin resistant as well um and uh my my blood sugar if i'm just normally it hovers at like one one oh five something like that and so I finally got things under control, and I'm out with my daughter, and we pull into a restaurant, and the, it's crowded, it's raining, everybody's jammed in the only place open the bar. We sit down at the bar, and I'm looking through the menu saying, okay, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that. And the bartender starts describing beers. And I'll say, okay, I'll, I'm, I'll try that. So the beer part of my brain wasn't talking to the low-carb part of my brain. Right? <laughs> So I drink this beer, and afterwards, as we're driving away, my wife said, I'm really surprised you drank that beer because you haven't had any. I'm like, oh, why didn't you say something? So I had been measuring myself. I have the ketonic, so I use the, the breath. And things. it had been turning red right away. The, the one beer kicked me out of ketosis for three days Yeah. and kept my blood sugar up for a full seven days. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it, it was really an eye-opening experience. And you never realize how one powerful beer. insulin yeah. is. Yeah, one, one beer. And, one beer. And the, and the insulin actually arises an hour or two after the beer is being processed in your liver because there's no sugar in the beer. It's minimal. It's, it's minuscule. So it's really the alcohol, and it's the processing of the alcohol that actually spikes the insulin on the back end that causes the problem. And most people don't recognize that. So it's the alcohol that spikes the it's insulin the as alcohol well? alcohol being detoxified. So it's the um, aldehydes or something? No, actually what happens is it actually produces uric acid and there's a whole uh, cascade in the liver that spikes the insulin at the back end. Uric acid is the hidden little booger. Oh, it is. It is. Uric acid plays this nasty little role in, uh, in a lot of things with so, insulin. So do you use potassium? What is it to help clear uric acid from people? Or I've tried oh, various we, other sort of over-the-counter things, but I haven't really found anything miraculous. Well, we, we use I, I use prescription medication to lower uric acid in patients that have pretty significant gout or kidney stones. But what I find is that what I, the first thing I've been able to do is if I change their diet and they'll follow the diet I give them, they'll drop that uric acid level by at least a point to a point and a half just with dietary change. And, and sometimes they don't need their med, they don't need medication. Okay. And I have a few that genetically, for whatever reason, just produce large amounts of uric acid, and so we, we will we'll, we'll treat them with you know, the allopurinols and the eulorics of the world, which are, which are uh, form, forms that, that, of medication that, that bind that uric acid and pull it out of the system. But uh, um, I, I found, which has amazed me, that, you know, I, I've had these diabetics that have gout all the time, and, you know, we put them on low-carb diet, and, you know, the one guy comes in to me and says, Doc, I, I, haven't had a, I haven't had gout for a year. And when I checked his uric acid level, it was, you know, it dropped by a full point, and I went, okay, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so as you start looking up the, the physiology of what's happening there, you go, whoa, wait a minute. This is, this is being driven by, um, you know, by insulin and by the processing of, of – because fructose, which is right. the half of the sugar molecule, is processed identically in the liver to alcohol. They're both processed exactly the same way. And 100% of fructose you eat has to be processed in the liver because it acts like an alcohol. Right. And fructose brings up 
gal, uh, the uric acid levels. Oh, it spikes remarkably. It. Yeah. yeah, remarkably. Yeah. The, the one the one time I had gout, I was going on a fast and thought, you know what? I think I'll drink V8 as my little salt and kind of <laughs> electrolyte thing, and that kicked me into gout. It was the, anyway. Gout is miserable. Don't ever. Oh, get it's gout. horrible. Yeah. Oh, it's it's nasty. Yeah. So I I know my my uric acid levels when I'm not careful with my diet or or right there waiting to to flare up. And so I've you know looked at supplemental ways to do it, and there really isn't, really isn't a good way to do it. I've tried you know high doses of vitamin C and things like that, and you know various ideas on that. But anyway, it's not enough to get gout, but it's enough to keep me to keep my metabolism from not and the blood sugar from not coming down. It keeps you in that preparing to hibernate state, that inflamed <laughs> state that it does. that it mammals does. get into, and. Uh, you know, without if you can't bring your uric acid levels down, it's 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 parallel to the to the insulin. It's it's well, got to be somehow. Well, well, and what it, it's interesting because what's happening, and, and I, I think a lot of it relates to the liver. Um, so there are two articles that were just published in the last two years um, that that talk about how how ketones actually turn down the inflammation drive in the liver and and play a role with um, the gout and. Um, also some of the other inflammatory markers that are produced in the liver. And so um, when you, you are processing sugars, um, fructose being the main one there, uh, you're actually ramping up or hitting the cascade that stimulates some of those inflammatory paths. When you turn on the ketones and you're processing, it actually breaks down a couple of those inflammatory cascades and turns down um, some of the interleukins, some of the tumor necrosis factors that actually drive inflammation and also play a role in infection or treatment of infection. So um, theoretically, and there's, there's no data to, to, to correlate them, but theoretically, you know, if you're if you're ramping up the signaling mechanisms for inf- infection, you're going to be able to treat that or uh, uh, improve your infection faster than you normally would, uh, you know, from a theoretical perspective. Okay. Well, we're we're right at an hour, and uh, you've been more than generous with your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm okay time-wise. If you had any other questions, I'm happy to answer them, but if you, if you well, bring the cutoff, we're great. Nah, so. Well, <laughs> we, I'm sure we can go out for a while. So here's, here's a theoretical question. And um, so, so one of the things we're finding out is that bacteria really love to live behind a biofilm. And I don't know what you've read recently about about biofilms, but the field is really beginning to expand their understanding of like what's the protein matrix that is common amongst all bacteria. And they're finding like recurrent uh, ear infections where they thought they were perhaps viral or actually just uh, the bacteria hiding behind a biofilm protected from either our immune system A or antibiotics B. So once you break down the biofilm, you find it clear out, clear out these infections. So Lyme disease is definitely in in that. Uh, it's a great, it's a fantastic biofilm maker. It's it's one of the best. Now, in a ketogenic diet, especially if you're limit, limiting your uh, you're limiting your protein intake and not going whole hog with and just replacing carbohydrates with proteins, th- does your body start scavenging like free proteins in there to some degree, whether they're in your cells or? or because I've heard some things about the ketogenic with that, like it cleans up some of your DNA and t- trims the ends of the, the, the DNA and things like that. So do you tend, does the body reclaim more of your protein? Is that part of the anti-aging effect? And if so, would it make sense that then it would might like be a little hungry and start clipping away at the, at the protein and the biofilm? Well, um, I, I don't know about how it would affect the biofilm. That part I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that um, the, the ketone themselves, the ketones themselves acting as a neural signal or, or, a, or an endocrine signal, um, ramp up the uh, NLP3 inflammasome um, and act as a, um, a basically a button pusher for the DNA in some cases where you're turning on and off um, various components of the DNA um, we know that that, that there are, it's a, it's possible to turn on some parts of DNA to re, have cells regenerate more effectively. Number one, number two, um, insulin itself. When insulin's high, insulin activates um, free radicals. Uh, these are oxygen particulates that are that are that are the ones that actually drive 
aging of cells and cause the cells to break down faster. Well, you're, when you're not making as much insulin, you actually stop making as many free radicals. And we know that the uh, activation of the uh, inflammasome by the ketone actually improves the clearance of those free radicals as well. So you now have this fuel source that acts like an antioxidant um, and, and does so radically more, more effectively than um, you know, anything you could take orally, CoQ10s and all the vitamin Cs and all those kind of things uh, based on what we're seeing in the literature, the, the, the changes that occur in a ketotic state and your ability to damper down the, um, the, the uh, free radical formation. Um, you, 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 when you do that, you actually slow the aging process and you actually slow the formation of cancers. Now, how that would affect um, biofilm around a cell uh, or what that would do um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, there, you do. Yeah. You, you're, oh, go ahead. There's a, a paper. It wasn't a paper. It was an article out of Ohio State, and they were talking about that even the immune system in general has a trouble breaking down these biofilms. But if it's like the if you can disturb the biofilm a little bit, some of the proteins break off tempor- temporarily before they rejoin. And if the immune system's there to gobble up this protein, you get enough of them. It's like pulling, you know, cards out from Jenga or sticks out from Jenga or something. Eventually, the tower collapses, and the and everything's freed up. So it's anyway, it's it's an evolving field, and nobody's figured it out. And but, oh, it's but it's I'm, huge. I'm so I'm I'm big on speculation. I live in a world of acupuncture. I get to speculate because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to have a paper to back it up. I can think, you know what? This smells like it's close. Let's, you know, the interventions we're trying, I'm trying are pretty, I'm not going to kill somebody. Recommending a little more vitamin C or, or some proteolytic enzymes or something like that. So I don't have to be as concerned as you are with some, you know, serious heavy duty drugs. So it's it's interesting to try things out. Well, and, and you know, it, that, that's, we, we discover, we make our major discoveries by, accident a lot of time uh just you know by you know this it's not because we're so smart (laughs) oh no oh no i the the challenge is the more i learn the more i realize i don't know so it's uh it's and and that that microbiologic world is uh, is such an evolving area that we really there is so much there that we don't understand uh it it, it's it is fascinating and um and and so much data comes out every 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 week about it it's hard you you have to really um, keep up on it. And, and the challenge is that the, the data is so immense in each of these areas that it, it can overwhelm you. But the, the cool thing is when you, when you have a theory and, and, and you, see a, you see the pattern and it seems to fit and you, you give it a little try, uh, then, then it gives us the ability to, to, to hone in on some more research that gives us some, some much better data and answers to these questions. Yeah, that's essentially what you did. Now, here, here's another question. I have, I have a patient who's Blood. Sh- I'm trying to get her switched over to ketogenic. She's doing a pretty good job. Her husband harasses her every time she looks at uh, some fruit or a piece of cake. And um, <laughs> but but she feels like she today she came in. She felt like she had a UTI coming on. Will an infection spike your blood sugar? Is that oh, yeah. part of the immune response? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, it's a stress response, and okay. in order to in order to help the cells out, the liver produces extra glycogen. I'll see fifty to seventy points jump in in a person who's fighting infection. I'll see fifty points jump in a person who's under under stress, um, you know, because that cortisol level is, will spike, and cortisol stimulates a cascade of insulin release and and glycogen release from the liver. Um, and basically, it's 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 part of the fight or flight response. Okay. Uh, when the body recognizes there's a problem, it's going to dump fuel. Uh, into the system so that the immune cells can do their job and muscles can do their job and um, you know it, it'll shift the temperature slightly and so because the temperature goes up you, you've got enzymes that don't work as effectively so the heart rate has to go up and so there's a whole there's a whole um, orchestration that occurs uh, to try to shift the body's um, uh, balance so that it's less hospitable to a virus or bacteria. And will that kick a person out of ketosis? Oh, every time, uh. every time. So is it possible that somebody's so stressed to begin with that they can't get into ketosis? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I, as a, as a physician, you know, in, in in managed care, the managed care world, um, you know, I, I work about sixteen to eighteen hours a day, and so the challenge I have is that I have a stressful job, and and then um, and and so for me, getting into ketosis is 
on some days hard because I either had too, too little sleep. Um, it's been very stressful. Um, that stress then kicks out cortisol and causes cravings. And so you end up overeating protein or things of that. So there's a whole slew of things that stress does uh, that, that won't allow you to shift into that ketogenic state. So then what's let's, – so let's – again, let's be a little hypothetical here. So let's say somebody is fighting off an active Lyme infection or any infection like that. They're stressed out because various reasons. They're losing their job. They can't show up, things like that. And so should that person even try to get ketogenic or should what should they do? Well, well, you know, if, 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 if you're my patient and you're in my practice, I'm going to tell you to try to stay ketogenic as much as you possibly can. Okay. Let the body do its job. The body, the, the body shifting out of ketosis and, and providing excess fuel for the body to fight, the cells to fight, the immune system to fight, is actually a, a normal and important response of the body to do. And so panicking about the fact that you're out of ketosis shouldn't, shouldn't worry you because the body's actually doing what it's designed to do. Um, but the fact that you're limiting this, the overall starch and the simple sugars it's still going to damper down inflammation and damper down um, the negative effects that would arise and the slowing of your ability to heal from that infection that would be there if you're you know, on an M&M diet versus a, a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And so you're, you're going to see tremendous benefits. Um, it's important to recognize that the, the body is designed to shift between those two fuel sources. The challenge is that in our society, 85% um, of what's on the plate is carbohydrates. So many of us have developed the ability to process carbs really well but don't have the ability to process fat really well because we've avoided it for 50 years and so um, when you shift a person into ketosis and they keto adapt their ability to bounce back and forth is is notably improved and over a period of 18 20 to 24 months i see people who have insulin resistance that actually heals completely and and they do better i mean we've got i've got six diabetics in my practice that are no longer diabetic by any means that wow. we test them that's incredible. and so and, and we know that diabetes slows the ability to heal from infection. Well, these folks are now no longer diabetic, so their ability to heal from infection is dramatically improved. Um, so so th th that – I don't know if that's a roundabout answer, but I, I would say you know, don't, don't focus so much on the fact that through out of ketosis, your body's doing what it's supposed to do. Just keep following the program and you, you, will, you will more rapidly recover. Uh, you'll feel better sooner and um, your, your ability to handle – those you know, future infections is, will, will improve as well. I'm grateful you were able to talk with Dr. Nally about how stress from an illness can cause a person to fall out of ketosis. I don't think that's acknowledged very often. No, that's something you don't hear a lot about. And that's one of the wonderful things about Dr. Nally and his practical experience with prescribing a ketogenic diet to his patients. So some people will try that on their own and depending on testing may or may not get into actual ketosis. But Dr. Nally is doing this for his patients who are ill and then actually testing to make sure that they are in ketosis or not in ketosis. So he gets to see firsthand what influences ketosis. So a lot of people just do a low carbohydrate diet and think they're in ketosis, but that's just not the case. And he really brings home the scientific end of things there. So absolutely. And that also remind me about episode number 70, our interview with Amy Berger. Do you remember Amy? Yes. She talked about uh, how a ketogenic diet affects the brain health. Well done. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So she spoke. And, Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I remember her specifically because she talked about how um, ketogenic diet affected um, brain function in regards to Alzheimer's, I believe. Yeah, that's, and that's one reason I'm so excited about the ketogenic diet and its usefulness for people with chronic Lyme disease is that its effect on the brain and the neurological symptom and how feeding ketones into the system really helps the brain function better, the heart as well. So the major organs love ketones, and that's a secondary component once you start digesting fats. And then the other thing about the ketogenic diet and some calorie restriction is it also helps reset the immune system, so it can support the immune system as well. The only 
drawback that I can see is there are some genetic issues with fat utilization as an energy source. So you do want to get your 23andMe done and see if you have any issues there. And then with a few simple supplements, you can do that. So the ketogenic diet, you're starving the bacteria and viruses from the energy source because you're not eating carbohydrates. You're giving your brain uh, an excellent energy source so it can work and help heal itself. And then lastly, you're helping resetting your immune system. What's not to like? Exactly. <laughs> and I've been doing a ketogenic diet for the past three months now and really testing fairly regularly. I'm using a breath ketone meter to see. And they're twice where I have fallen out of ketosis. And one was when I accidentally had a beer. And don't ask me how you accidentally had a beer, but trust me, it was an accident. And the other time it just broke down and had a steamed dumpling from the local Chinese place. And they both, both those eating events took me out of ketosis for about three days. So it doesn't take a whole lot to really switch your body back over and to not burning as much fat and creating the ketones. And the reason I did it was this past winter, I noticed my brain function was a little bit foggy uh, in and of itself. And I think that was due not so much to Lyme disease at the time, but to some carbohydrate uh, resistance, to some insulin resistance. And so things have really cleared up here for that. So I encourage you, if you're thinking about doing a ketogenic diet, talk with your doctor, talk with your healthcare provider, and give it a go. There's a lot of benefit to giving a to giving it a try. Okay. Yes. So if you like Lime Ninja Radio, go ahead and click on over to iTunes and leave us a review, please. You just go into your little I, uh, iTunes app on your computer or on your phone and leave us a review there. We love to hear from you on our iTunes reviews, and we will read them on the show. And just put in a name. If you want to be anonymous, just put in a name like Super Duper Man did. Yes, and here is Super Duper Man's review. I am so glad to have this resource available during my trial with Lyme. Short and sweet and to the point. We're glad Perfect. we're here for you, Super Duper Man. All right. Thanks so much. And thank you, Aurora. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know when a ninja enters a room, she doesn't turn the lights on. She turns the dark off. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.